Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. It's another edition of the Talking Mets podcast here on this Sunday, April the 25th, 2021. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check me out all the time at thetalkingmetspodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media and you get the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at talkingmetspodcast.com. Well, Welcome to another edition of the Talking Mets podcast, and as I was preparing for this show, I was saying to myself, not a heck of a lot much different to talk about this Mets team than last week. We talked last week about weathering the storm, the weather, and you know the rainouts and the COVID uh, uh, shutdowns, and how it's so hard to get momentum, and then the Mets go out to Chicago and they basically play in sub-freezing temperatures like it's New Year's Day. And uh, they get swept. And, and they come home and they have a nice series win against the Nats. But it's not any secret. It's been a choppy start. And this is a team that day in and day out uh, has not even close hit any peak on, on outside of some of the starting pitching. And the bullpen, which has been very surprising. There's nobody on the offense that's hit any kind of rhythm. There's nobody on the offense that's hitting, I believe, maybe J.D. Davis and uh, Brandon Nimmo, who had who has cooled down a little bit but, but has been off to a good start. There's really nobody that's hit their stride. Now, uh, I saw some articles throughout the week, as you know, and every time the Mets go on a bad streak, you get a lot of pundits saying that the Mets are going this way, and when they're on a good streak, there's the other extreme, and Throughout the first two months as we try to figure out who the Mets are, who are the 2021 Mets, what can we reasonably expect from them, you're going to get that. I'm not here to talk about the Mets need an identity or or any of that stuff, but more what I see, which is the good and the bad, and, and the bad 
is something that I wonder is overall baseball. Are we seeing a trend? And the bad is the offense. Are we seeing a trend down in offense? And I'll give you some examples of that in a minute. The good, I think, is still plentiful. And I'm not trying to be over over positive because I think the first good is that on a Sunday game, you saw the depth where you could put an Elmora, uh, a VR, you know, maybe Kevin Pillar if you wanted to at some point, and you could sit a Jeff McNeil, and you could sit a Don Smith, and potentially when he's slumping, sit Conforto, and you're not going to get high-level, you know, all-star performances out of these guys for sustained periods, but for a couple of weeks or for a series or even a day, you get well above league average performance. I mean, with Elmora, you get... Uh, every bit the kind of defense that you wanted out of Juan Lagares, who showed that at times, had his slumps defensively, uh, but he showed you value there. And VR, who, you know, is a guy that I'm hot and cold on. I think he's going to drive you nuts because I've read a little bit for those that have, have watched them play over the course of a full season. He's going to make goofy defensive plays and and what have you, but he's got speed, he's got a live bat, and, and he's a guy that when McNeil, as he's slumping and he sits, I don't think there's a huge downgrade offensively in a a small sample size. The bullpen has been much better than I expected. Uh, We all know about the bridge right now. The Castro-May-Diaz bridge has been really good, and it's only going to get better when Lugo comes back. And you could even, if these guys continue that, and Castro to me has been the biggest surprise because I was the most critical of him. And he pitched out of some trouble yesterday, and he got squeezed a little bit too. So, you know, some of that trouble wasn't all his fault. But you can ease Lugo back into leverage if these guys are this good. And quietly, the secondary guys, Familia, Gazelman, now you have Reed Castro, uh, excuse me, Reed Foley, Reed Castro, Reed Foley, Sean Reed Foley coming in being impressive for three innings. Those guys potentially can eat quality innings when you're down. You saw that with Gazelman and, and Reed Foley. Maybe you come back. And uh, they give you some depth when you know you don't have to always go in situations to Castro, May, and Diaz. You could pick your spots where you could hold a four-run or five-run lead with some of these guys. That's where you got into trouble in 2019. If the game was within spitting distance, four, five, maybe even six runs, you, you had nobody that could give you any kind of ability to get through an inning. So if that's with the bullpen, and in a way, if you look at the stats, the bullpen's been better than the rotation because the rotation, everybody's had a stinker except for DeGrom. And we'll get to DeGrom. we got to go a whole segment on DeGrom. Uh, but they've been very good. Uh, I still worry about the back end with Peterson and Lucchese, but it sounds like Carrasco's progressing as well as Syndergaard, so you just have to get through another six weeks or so. Um, the real, where's the bad? Well, the bad is the energy at times, and and it really goes the energy on offense. And to a certain degree in Chicago, what worried me a little bit is, and it was symptomatic with that dropped pop-up, where I think it was Conforto and Kevin Pillar and McNeil converged, the pop-up dropped, and... And to me, I said, you know, that's the first sign where a team doesn't look confident, doesn't look energetic, and those are the things that get managers fired. And I'm not here to say Louis Rojas deserves any kind of mega attention on this podcast because we have n- we have no ability to assess Louis Rojas in any way, shape, or form other than in-game moves. And as our friend, uh, Medellin Mets fan, has pointed out, he's been pretty impressed with them. You know, talked a little bit about Diaz coming in in the uh, new extra inning rules for two innings, kind of a way to try to win a game with your closer on the road, something that 
you know, he broke it down where, you know, look, you put your closer in. If he loses, you don't really kill him because he's coming into an impossible spot. Because it's an impossible spot with a runner in second, you need a guy who, who misses bats. That's Diaz. And uh, and if he does well and goes two innings, he's a hero and wins the game. And I, I understand that. And, you know, he also talked about uh, a little bit about what I just said is, you know, sitting McNeil, trying to get guys going. You can do that because the downgrade it's there, but it's not huge. I mean, these are league average or better guys. So, you know, is that coming from the front office? I don't know. Uh, you know, probably some of it is. But look, a guy like Rojas has to answer to these guys. Not Zach Scott, not Sandy Alderson. They're not in the clubhouse. It's Louis Rojas that has to answer to these guys. And whether it's his idea, and I'm sure he's giving input, or he's the one communicating it, you know, you got to give him credit because if they're going to to win – Guys like Elmora and VR, they're going to have to play a little bit, and you're going to have to get them time because if they sit for two, two and a half weeks, I don't care how much of a pro you are. I don't care how much batting practice you take, fielding practice. I don't care if they throw you down to the alternate site for a week. It's still not the same. And, uh, and, and you know, I, I really, you know, the alternate site, I know there's games and they're playing and whatnot, but I just think the situation, the the, the energy – all that stuff that comes with basically a fake game, I, I, I think it's almost like a workout. It's not a substitute for the real thing. So, you know, that's my thing. Uh, it's something to look at because the energy, I think, or the, the discontent by the fan base and the concern comes from the very sleepy offense, an offense that, you know, may score three, four runs in an inning, but then go a lot of time without getting anything going, an offense that has not executed with runners on base. And to a certain degree, they won 4 nothing yesterday. If they were in their sink, they should have won six, seven, eight, nothing. I know they got a, a guy thrown out at the plate, but they're still not executing with runners on third and less than two outs. Uh, I don't always think they they make contact when they should. Uh, maybe that's who they are. Maybe that's the kind of hitters they are. I don't think so. I think that they're better than what they've shown in terms of execution, and I don't think they're going to hit last in the league in runners in scoring position all year. If they do, they're going to have a problem, and that tends to be a ebb and flow kind of stat. I don't know if you could really look at any trends if this offense is bad all year and maddeningly inconsistent and frustrating not much you could do I mean you can go out you can try to bring Chris Bryan in but look your third baseman other than his defense is hitting I mean if he hits the way he's hitting JD Davis then you don't got to worry about the deal you'll survive with the defense and you'll bring in Guillaume late like they did yesterday and that's what you're gonna have to do and, and maybe you spot him uh, with some ground ball pitchers out there like Stroman, depending on, you know, the game, the situation, and what have you. Um, you know, everyone's making a deal about the defense. The guys that are a problem at times, Nimmo and J.D. Davis, they're the best hitters on the team. They'll make up more for it. And, and I think that's way overrated. But where the energy and really where the concern comes into play is offense. But I started to look at the league, and the only a couple of little things to point out. First, the Mets have not really played a good offensive team yet. Philly, uh, Colorado's okay, uh, and they played in that environment, so you have to give them credit there. But Philly, Washington, Miami, all NL East division opponents, all right now bad offensive teams based on the numbers. Now, Washington didn't have Soto. Miami, I think, is you know got some interesting players, but I don't think they're anything special offensively. And, and Philly, of course, has some really good hitters in the middle of the lineup, where we Muto and Harper, and, and lesser extent, Reese Hoskins. But Around their lineup, there's a lot of guys that you could pitch to. So maybe the pitching's a little overrated. You'll get a test here. Red Sox come to town, one of the best offensive teams in baseball right now. But if you look at the offense, 
throughout baseball, baseball's down a half run a game from 2019. A half a run. The levels you're seeing now, which is about 4.3 runs per game, are more towards the 2010, 11, 12, 13 level, levels we haven't seen in about eight years, and specifically 2013. And I remember this because this was a big conversation. I remember uh, going into the offseason where, especially with the Mets trying to figure out if they were going to go with Ike Davis or Lucas Duda at first base back then, the talk was it's hard to find 30 home run power, and, and Duda was one of those guys that showed that potential as well as Ike Davis. You know, guys like Justin Upton were very valued because they could hit a lot of home runs because there wasn't the ability anymore. Offense post-steroids with testing had gone down, and you were starting to see a, a swing back. Now, the problem now is that if you do that now versus just seven, eight years ago, there's less contact in the game, so the, the product gets even worse. Because you can't go out and say, all right, ball is this because of the ball? Is this because of weather? Just because there's some players out, like Juan Soto? You know, is it schedule? I mean, is it an anomaly? I don't know. I mean, that's a pretty big drop, half a running game. We're not quite a month into the season. What I'm saying is, is the Mets' offense dropping a little bit? And I think they're an extreme. I don't think the Mets, who are one of the worst offensive teams in baseball right now, are going to be one of the worst offensive teams in baseball. These are guys that I had pegged for five runs a game if they hit with runners in scoring position. And I still believe with a couple of big hits or runners in scoring position, those 4 nothing victories become seven-run games. I mean, that's that that's the difference right now. And uh, it, it's going to be a lot of pressure. If this offense doesn't start to really get into sync, I think it's unrealistic to expect all these guys, and you saw it with Stroman on Saturday afternoon, to pitch to the levels where they have to shut a team down uh, all game. I don't think it's realistic. Plus, as you get to better offensive teams, like they're going to see this week, um, it's not realistic. You're going to have to win some games 6-4. to four. <laughs> You're just going to have to. That's baseball. And I think they will. And I So it's really, again, a situation where it's a choppy start. I'm not ready to make any kind of declaration about this team. But I don't want to get too crazy about the energy on offense because I don't know where that's coming from other than when you don't hit, you don't look good. But the offense right now is what to look at because there could be some league trends at play here with the dead ball, maybe strike zone, way too early to tell. And look, you've got a number of guys who have something to prove and have now have some expectations and pressure. We talked about Lindor and Conforto. McNeil might fall onto that. You know, McNeil is a guy that now is expected to produce. Uh, he's now three years in the league. Dom Smith, no longer this prospect. He produced last year at a very high level. How can he repeat that? I mean, ask Pete Alonso. It's not always that easy. Uh, even if McCann has a contract now, and although he's done some great things behind the plate, uh, and I, I would have to give him some credit, along with Jeremy Hefner, for some of the changes that are you're seeing on, on, on the pitching side, he hasn't really hit a heck of a lot. Um, and, and what have you. So, um, again, not much different from a week ago, but starting to crystallize about where we could hone in on where is this team op- team's opportunity. And I think if this offense is like this all year, I don't think going out and making a trade is going to help you. Unless, what do you say? You go out and Dom Smith's a bust, you move Nimmo to left, and you go get yourself a center fielder? Maybe. Too early to say that. Maybe. You know, you, you say, I can't live with J.D. Davis's defense as good offensively as he is, and you try to go get Chris Bryant? Eh. You know, I don't know if that's going to change a heck of a lot. And you, you know, you're going to help the defense. 
So really at this point, just something to look at. And I think that all things considered, this is a team that based on their run differential should be a lot worse. Should be like six and 10, maybe worse. So the fact that they're where they are, they're probably a little bit lucky, but it's a good sign going forward. So we'll continue to evaluate as we continue to be in the, who are the 2021 Mets phase and, uh, you know, who are this, who is this team? And we'll continue to take a look and another big test this week is they play one of the better offensive teams and a strong American league team as the Red Sox come into city field and they get a couple of days off. So the momentum continues to be, uh, you know, also choppy, but soon enough, you're going to see them play quite a bit of baseball every day, you know, assuming the weather and COVID stay at bay. And uh, I think we'll, that, that will be that a flow situation will be addressed. All right, let's take a quick break. When I come back, Jacob deGrom, I know it was a few days ago, but it's important to look at Jacob deGrom. We've looked at Jacob deGrom in terms of context of how he is and, and the streak he's on. Went into it a little bit. Now, that game on Friday, where does it stand in Mets history? Is it one of the best games ever in Mets history? Well, it's close. You'd be surprised who's ahead of him. Not all of the guys who are ahead of him in their performances, but one in particular. So we'll talk about Jacob deGrom, that performance, and where it stands in Mets history right after this. And Mercer goes down on strikes. Another double-digit strikeout performance for DeGrom, the 49th of his Major League career. And Stevenson down swinging at 100-mile-an-hour gas. 11 strikeouts for Jacob DeGrom. Here's the 0-2 to Harrison. Swung out and missed strike three. Got him with a slider way out of the strike zone. Down and away. Jacob DeGrom has struck out the side in the sixth inning, and that's an even 12. And it looks like he's got a whole lot more in the tank. And Jake gets him for the second time. That's 13 for DeGrom, 48 in his first four-start, tying a major league record. Coming from DeGrom. Swing and a tip, strike three, as Tomas Nito hung on. That is the 49th strikeout for Jacob DeGrom. It is the most in major league history for a pitcher through four starts in a season. One, two. Strike three, a career-high 15 strikeouts for Jacob DeGrom. Delivers to Robles, bouncing ball to short. Lindor charges, scoops it up, throws to first in time. Side retired. And look at the response from the fans here. DeGrom stepped out of the dugout and got into the on-deck circle. They're thrilled. Jake had an RBI double in the fifth inning to drive in the game's first run. And he lines this one in the right field. And he's going to second hit of the night. He is just a phenomenon. You can have your Otani. Let's <laughs> have their own two-way star. Well, he's definitely the MVP of this game. He's done everything here tonight against the Nets. Jacob DeGrom has three complete games, including one shutout in his major league career. He'll be bidding for both tonight. Here's the pitch. Swing and a ground ball towards first to his left. Alonzo has it. Underhands to DeGrom. In time. Put it in the books. Jacob DeGrom retires the last 19 batters. A two-hit shutout. 15 strikeouts. No walks. An unforgettable performance for the master of his craft. Jacob DeGrom rewriting record books tonight. He now has the best ERA for a career in Mets history. He passed Tom Seaver. Never better than tonight. All right, we're back, and even a few days later, 
everybody's still buzzing about Jacob DeGrom's pitching performance on Friday. Complete game shutout, 15 strikeouts, two hits, and no surprise that the talk now, and it's been since really even before the season, about DeGrom's Hall of Fame candidacy, which I think is getting a little far ahead, but we could talk about it. And how long can he do this? I mean, he's in his you know late prime by you know, getting into age 33 season. He's in his late prime when you start to look at how ball players age. And it seems like he's getting better. I mean, John Harper wrote a great column over at SNY. And, you know, anybody, you don't have to be a scout. If you look at him on the mound and you see how effortlessly that 99 to 100 comes out of his arm. I mean, late in the game, you don't see any laboring. It seems like he gets stronger as the game goes on. And the most impressive thing I thought out of the entire situation is, as I'm looking at the pitch count, and DeGrom finished up with 109 pitches. I'm saying to myself, will they hold him to a hard 100? Now, I don't like to... I'm not a pitch count police guy. I mean, I personally believe a good top of the rotation, a one, a two, a three pitcher, should go 120 pitches. I don't care what area you're in. I mean, the days of Doc Gooden, David Cohn throwing 150, 160 pitches. I mean, I think it was a playoff game in Seattle. Uh, David Cohn, I think, threw 155, 160 pitches for the Yankees. You're never going to see that again. The effectiveness clearly goes down as you get deeper and deeper into that 100 pitch, north of 100 pitch, and then tired, injury, things like that. Different era. I'm sure you could push some guys, but I'm not advocating for that. But 110 to 120 pitches, that should be an every game norm. I'm sorry. And it would eliminate some of the bad baseball in the middle innings with garbage middle relievers and guys that walk the ballpark. But that's an old hat story. Things aren't going to change. But I was looking for exactly how they were going to handle DeGrom, and I was so happy to see that they allowed him to go out that extra inning. Now, like I said in the beginning, something to look at. Going into today's action, Sunday's action, runs per game were down by about a half a run from two years ago. Early season weather, maybe, matchups, uh, you know, dead ball. Is that part of it? The messing around with the ball, which is driving me crazy because why can't baseball just leave things alone? You know, let the game play out. Uh, there's a lot of different things that, you know, could come into play for the lack of offense. And the Nats are one of the worst offensive teams. I mean, the Mets, the Yankees, the Nats, all these teams are at the bottom of the league in scoring. Now, will that continue? I don't know. Without Juan Soto in the lineup, you may have to take a, a little bit of a handicap on the performance. But Colorado, Miami, Washington, I don't care who they are, how good those teams are. In this era of dominance where there is smaller ballparks, there is more offense, even though that offense is being criticized for being zero-sum gain, like home run and what have you, there's a ton of offense. You're, you're sitting in the midst. Like I said a couple of weeks ago, we're in the midst of an historic run, and everybody's talking about that. But where did this game stack up? So immediately after that game, I was thinking about the old Bill James game score. Now, you're probably familiar with it, but if you're not, the Bill James game score is basically a formula, and there's a couple of different ones. If you go to MLB.com, they'll tell you there's the Bill James game score, and then Tom Tango, another uh, all-time sabermetrician, has come out with his own. Essentially, they give you points for each out-recorded, more points for each inning completed after the fourth, 
points for strikeouts. They ding you for home run, uh, for run, earn runs allowed, hits allowed, unearned runs allowed, walks allowed. It's essentially like fantasy baseball. I mean, let's face it. There's fantasy baseball leagues. I remember CBS Sportsline used to ding you for walks and, and runs uh, when they used to do certain pitching performances out there. I'm sure everybody's got different things uh, that they use in their fantasy league. So it's ba- like it's like fantasy baseball, but it takes every game in the history of the sport and puts it on even playing ground. It is obviously going to favor strikeouts, which is going to favor pitchers in this era. So we'll put that in context. But I tweeted out on Saturday morning, and I was wrong, that DeGrom's performance on Friday, the 15th strikeout two-hitter against the Nats, was third all-time behind Seaver's uh, 12-inning performance uh, where he got a no decision in 1974 where he went 12 innings. And then everybody remembers the other performance that was a shade better than DeGrom, which was David Cohen's 19th strikeout performance the last day of the regular season, 1991. Philly swinging and everything, a masterful performance uh, there. Uh, there is one other, and I didn't realize this. This is an interesting one. There's one other performance that is, as far as a game score, is better than DeGrom's performance on Friday, which fourth all time. Now, remember, before I tell you who number one is, uh, DeGrom's game on Friday was better than Seaver's game, the Jimmy Qualls game in 1969, uh, better than Seaver's 19th strikeout game against the Padres in 1970. So remember that. And I'll tell you a couple other players that are showing up on the top 10 and who aren't showing up in terms of game score. Just gives you kind of a con, uh, you know, and puts in context some of these performances that we all know as we, as longtime fans, we go back and, and go into our memory banks in Mets history. So Rob Gardner, who? Rob Gardner, 1965 Mets, last weekend of the regular season against the Phillies at Shea Stadium on a Saturday Pitched 15 innings. Yes, 15 shutout innings. Struck out only 7 in 15 innings. By today's standards, it'd be like you should have struck out 25. But 15 innings, allowed only 5 hits, no runs, in a game that ended in 18 innings and was suspended because of curfew. I don't know why, because I think Shea Stadium had lights in 1964, but they suspended it because of curfew. Wound up playing a doubleheader the next day, which is the last day of the regular season. Mets lost both of those games. Lost 112 games throughout that season. But Rob Gardner's game score was 112. So he's number one. The best pitch game, according to Bill James' game score, or Tom Tango, or whatever formula you want to use. The best game in Mets history, October 2nd, 1965. 15 innings, no earned runs. I'd love to see if we could get Rob Gardner on the show. I don't know where he is now. Uh, and talk about that, because that's an amazing performance. And I never knew about that. I mean, here it is. I've been watching the Mets for a 1,000 years. I probably have run this game score before, and this one comes up. And I'm on baseball reference, so I don't know quite if I'm doing anything wrong here. But, yeah, a 15-inning game. The next best score would be a 12-inning performance by Seaver, like I said, on May 1st, 1974, against the Dodgers, a game the Mets lost 2-1. to one in extra innings, and then go on and on and on. Who else is on this game score? So the top 10, you're going to find this very interesting because there's going to be a name. Well, I'll go, it's one name I think you're not going to be surprised about. But, of course, after DeGrom on Friday, you have an August 11th game against the Padres in 1971 where Seaver wins one, uh, loses one nothing. We went 10 innings. The Mets lost one nothing. Uh, Seaver again in 1970 against the Phillies. Matt Harvey against the White Sox. You guys might remember this game. Uh, he did not, I believe, get a decision. The game went into extra innings, 
But uh, I think that was the Bloody Nose game, if I'm not mistaken. I think at that point on May 7th, after that White Sox performance, 9 innings, 13 strikeouts, excuse me, 9 innings, 12 strikeouts, everybody was starting to realize that um, Harvey was legit. I think that was when the Dark Knight thing was starting to really pick up steam. Jerry Kuzman had a, a game where he went 10 innings, struck out 15. He's eighth on the list. Seavers, Jimmy Qualls' performance in 1969, July 9th, 1969, is number nine. And number 10, R.A. Dickey against the Orioles, a one-hitter. I think that was, yes, that was in the midst of his back-to-back one-hitters. His Orioles' performance at Chase Stadium, excuse me, City Field, 13 strikeouts, nine innings, only one hit. That's 10th all-time. Now, who's showing up right outside the top 10? I'm going to give you one name that's showing up that you'll, you might remember this game. It's a 2011 game. 2011, in the midst of the end of a season where the Mets were going nowhere. And it's a couple of months before Hurricane Sandy. There was another hurricane, and I cannot remember the name of the hurricane in late August. But there was a hurricane. It was it was barreling down on the uh, on New York, the Northeast. And I could, you could tell, I think it was against, yes, it was against the Braves, the performance. But Chris Capuano struck out 13 Braves in a nine-inning, 122-pitch performance Mets win six nothing a lot of ways it was starting to get windy and, and and nasty and I think the Braves just wanted to get the hell out of Dodge but a game is a game it counts so Chris Capuano is the according to game score the 12th best pitching performance in Mets history all time and you want to know something the no hitter the nohan the iconic first no hitter in Mets history 49th all time a 90-game score. Now, he's getting dinged, Santana, because he walked five batters in that game. Take away some of the walks. It's a little bit better, and it starts to creep up a little bit higher in Mets history. Um, but, you know, guys like Sean Estes, who had a one-hitter, better than uh, uh, Santana's no-hitter. Terry Leach, a performance in 1982, a 10 inning shutout. He's up there ahead of uh, this Santana no-hitter. But So the point is, I'm getting a little off track here because I'm having fun with numbers, but... It's fun if you could go to Baseball Reference and you subscribe to something like Stathead, you could go out there and you could see some of what is uh, is looked at in terms of statistically great moments in Mets history. Now, as far as DeGrom and the Hall of Fame, I'm not ready to start to get too deep into that because I think it's too early. But since 2014, now if you go back to 2010, you want to do the decade of 2010 to 2020, DeGrom from a wins above replacement is eighth all-time. He didn't even pitch the first four-eighth of that decade, when I say eighth all-time. Eighth all-time during that decade. And he didn't even pitch the first four years in that era. Now, you take away, and you start to do 2014 to 2020, you're not even counting maybe some of the performances this year. Only Max Scherzer's better. And if you want to put his performance in terms of wins above replacement into current Hall of Famers, DeGrom, uh, he's going to fall uh, in the, and let me go here, you put wins above replacement, he's got about 36 or 37 wins above replacement. I mean, right now, he's falling into that Catfish Hunter, not uh, too off of Jack Morris, uh, Jack Chesbro. Uh, I mean, you know, those are the, that's really going back. But if you want to see someone a little more contemporary, I think, Je- you know, Catfish Hunter, and uh, and 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 essentially, uh, right after that, Jack Morris fall into that. A lot of relievers right now. He's right there in terms of win shares. The Bruce Gossages, the Lee Smiths, Trevor Hoffman, Raleigh Fingers, Bruce Souter. Those are looked at completely differently. But 
if DeGrom pitches another five years, and, and this is where it really, you know, DeGrom's got, what, about 71 wins, and that's been the narrative. If DeGrom pitches another five years and averages 15 wins a year, 15, 30, 45, uh, 60, let's say four years, another 60 wins, you know, maybe, you know, shave a win or two off. You know, if he could get another, uh, you know, 50 to 60 wins and get up to about 120, 130, um, he still would go into the Hall of Fame. And I'm talking about at an elite level, not at a league average level, because he's got to pitch, maybe not all time, but very good to elite for the next five years, I think, to even be in consideration for the Hall of Fame. Um, I think then you could, you know, have a bigger argument. I think you, you got you to gotta let this thing breathe. You could speculate all you want about whether he could, because of his delivery, because he was a shortstop in college, whether he could pitch until he's 40. I think the next five years and how good he is, and he doesn't have to be like this good. He has to be really good to great. He's got to be right up there as one of the top pitchers, top five, ten pitchers in baseball. Now, can he be great like this for five years till age 38, very much past the expiration date? I don't know. He's had a couple of surgeries. Uh, he had the ulnar nerve surgery not too long ago. Of course, he had Tommy John back when the Mets drafted him. So maybe the arm has been reconstructed and maybe it's in good shape. And I'm sure it sounds like listening to everybody talk, he's such a smart pitcher. And it really goes to show you how between the ears is really what this is all about when it comes to pitching. That's what it's all about. Uh, it's You could throw as hard as you want. You could look at all the track man data. You could do all the things that are out there that are at your disposal in terms of technology. But if you don't understand how to put all those tools together and work a lineup, not just throw your game, but work a lineup, look at how the pitchers are reading you, look at what their um, processes on the other side, you know, taking a lot of different things into the equation that are going on in the game, the ballpark, the situation, uh, you know, that's how you go from, you know, inconsistency to good and good to great. And I think that's what you're seeing with DeGrom right now. So, um, I think it's something to watch. I'm not going to get too crazy about it. I know that the media is going to want to have this party every five days. I mean, look, this is just like Doc Gooden probably in 85. I mean, we're at that point where I think that's what they're expecting. We need to see more. I mean, he's not going to pitch to a, a less than one ERA all year. He's going to get hit. He's going to have games where he gives up three runs. I mean, you even saw in Colorado, they the one thing you've seen so far is that they will run into one of those 99-mile-an-hour fastballs. You've seen uh, Marlins ran into a couple of them. The Rockies ran into a couple of them. So he's going to give up runs, and he's going to have his down games. But uh, I think you're in the midst of seeing him at his peak. And probably the best comp of the kind of Hall of Fame career, and he won't come close to the 200 wins, but Roy Holiday is probably the best comp. If DeGrom goes in, let's say, with like 120, 130 wins, he would probably go in as one of the – He won't, not probably, he will – He'll go in as the least amount of wins as a Hall of Famer, if that's how his career winds up in that 120 to 130 range. And he really will become, and this is so far down the road, if we're still doing this kooky show 10, 15, 20 years down the road, um, he, more than that, because you know, you got to wait five years before he gets in, and we hope DeGrom has a, a very long career, uh, you know, another seven, eight years, whatever it may be. He'll, uh, he'll go in as the poster child for modern analytics and the value of wins for starting pitchers. He will. Unless there's another player that comes along in the interim, which right now I can't think of. And I know it'll be funny because the LOL Mets, they could never get the bullpen in, in, in check when he was on the mound. And the offense is, is always bad when he pitches. The antithesis of Seaver, which seemed to 
you know, they seem to step up. But you look at some of those Seaver games that I just mentioned that were on the uh, the list. I mean, so many games you went 10, 12 innings. Mets didn't score. Scored one run. So in a lot of ways, you're seeing some of the things that the Mets fans in the 70s went through with Seaver with DeGrom today. With an offense that shouldn't be having trouble scoring more than one, two runs a game. But we talked about that earlier in the broadcast. So anyway... Interesting stuff. I mean, we, we had talked about DeGrom two weeks ago. I thought we'd jump a little bit deeper into some of this. A lot to think about. Let's have fun with it, and let's see, and let's not put expectations on this. Let's sit back and see how high he can go, how how good he can be. And, uh, you know, certainly pitching, like to me, is like art, is like artistry, and, and, and it's beautiful to watch when he's on. And, and, it does, and, and let's see him against some of the top teams if he has a chance to pitch against. Uh, the Dodgers at some point, uh, and what have you. Teams that really can score, it'll be interesting to see how that, you know, all plays out. So, you know, teams like the uh, you know the Diamondbacks right now, a good offensive team. We know about Atlanta. Uh, teams like that, you know, environments that are are uh, difficult to pitch and maybe are not conducive to low-scoring games. Let's see how he, he pitches there. Now, we saw Colorado, but it was also 30-degree weather, so keep that in mind. All right, let's take a quick break. When we return, Dave Jordan, author of the book Cobra, a new book about Dave Parker. Why Dave Parker? Well, there's a lot of Mets connections, and I think we'll also get into some of this Hall of Fame talk. And, uh, you know, a certain Met, Keith Hernandez, I think, falls similar to Parker in terms of a very good career that as we get deeper into the Hall of Fame discussion and as, you know, we look back at some of these players from the 70s and 80s, maybe we got to rethink about that as we learn a little bit more about stats and, and different errors and what have you. So, all right, let's take a quick break. We'll be back with that and more right after this. So it's two and two with two out to Hernandez. And he hits it to right field. Parker going back. Make no, he grabs the ball. Both runs score. Hernandez to second and the game is tied. Unbelievably, Dave Parker drops the final out of the ball game and the Mets tie the game on the error. Well, you see it happen once in a while. The one-handed catch. He tried to nonchalant it. Parker noted for that, and it cost him a ball game right here at least at this point in the game. Reds had it wrapped up. All he had to do was catch it. It was not that tough a catch. But Parker with the one-hand showboat-type catch, and he is there. It's a routine play right there, and he doesn't make it. Once again, another look at it. Off the heel of the glove. Parker looks in. No ball. The game tied. The go-ahead run at second, and Carter the batter. We're back, and joining me, author of the book Cobra, Life of Baseball and Brotherhood. It's the Dave Parker memoir. Dave Jordan. Dave had a great book, uh, Fastball John, John D. Quistel's book a few years back. And you might be asking, why Dave Parker on the Talking Mets podcast? Well, Dave Parker has a ton of connections to interesting moments in Mets history. And also, as we talked about earlier, you know, with the Hall of Fame and Jacob deGrom and how looking at the Hall of Fame is going to become harder and harder and different. Well, going back to the 70s and 80s, that's becoming harder because we have a lot more information now. So, Dave, welcome to the program. And, you know, congratulations on your second book. Uh, an interesting player in Dave Parker. But more importantly, I think you got to really relive a couple of uh, special eras in baseball that I think a lot of listeners probably remember vividly because those are the eras that they cut their teeth on in learning about baseball and growing up as baseball fans. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Mike. I, I appreciate you having me on here. Yeah, it was it was really um, it was really an interesting thing and an interesting dynamic. I basically came off of 
the release of Fastball John, as you recalled. And um, Johnny and I had actually just gotten home from an event in Cooperstown celebrating the book when I, uh, I had a chat with a close friend of mine who's close to Dave Parker. And he told me Dave was trying to get an autobiography off the ground. And um, he'd been trying working on that for about 15 years, had gone through three sets of writers. And he was basically like, you know, um, I'd love to see what Cobra's story would look like in your hands, which kind of made sense logistically because Dia Crystal and Parker were born in the same year, graduated from high school at the same time, were both selected in the 1970 Major League Draft, and both made their debuts in 1973. So it was territory I was extremely familiar with. Dave Parker is, if you look at his career from 74, and let's cut it off about 1987, when you start to look at the numbers, and you'll, you're a stats guy, and I was looking at wins above replacement. I mean, he's there with Reggie Jackson in terms of win shares, uh, Tim Raines, Hall of Famers. What's interesting during that era, and I'm wondering as you were doing the book and going back and remembering those you know, two decades with Dave, names that I was surprised that came up as some of the top, and we're talking offense here, hitters, uh, Buddy Bell, Keith Hernandez, Dewey Evans, Bobby Gritch, uh, not all Hall of Fame numbers, Jose Cruz, mm-hmm. not all Hall of Fame names that come off the tip of your tongue. Were you specifically with Hernandez, who I think is starting to get, at least here in the New York area, uh, a look back of more consideration for the Hall of Fame? And I know we may be doing the Hall of Very Good at some point, but I think there's some nuance to that comment. Um, did you get a chance to look back at some of these players and get a different appreciation as you were talking to Dave's? Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny you should bring this up because I came across a, um, a stat that I thought would be an interesting talking point. You know, since Jackie Robinson broke the Major League Color Barrier in 1947, there have been 113 players with at least 9,000 plate appearances. And, you know, everybody in, in stats these days, they all talk about small sample sizes. You know, you got to have at least 7,500 instances for something to be, quote unquote, significant. So I came up with this statistic. I found called the BRS percentage. And Mike Petrillo at a major league, uh, at the MLB network, he, he talks about it rather often. Um, the percentage of base runners who scored in the batter's play, not necessarily in RBI. Of those 113 players, Roberto Clemente was ranked 12. Al Oliver is ranked six. Willie Stargell is ranked five. Dave Parker is tied for number two on that list. And to me, oh, that's, wow. not a, that's not a coincidence. That was an organizational philosophy executed at the highest level by men of elite playing ability. You know, the Pirates in the 1970s were the third winningest franchise in the absence of dominant pitching staff and and as well as a middling defense. They were last in walks in both the 60s and 70s among legacy ball clubs. Wow, that's interesting. And I saw, I was reading, uh, and as I was prepping for this, there was uh, on a website called The Comeback, talked about how the Pirates in 1979 with their championship team you know, they weren't a, a powerhouse in terms of power and, and, and OPS and things like that, but they, they were able to score runs, and it was hearkening back to maybe some of the debate. You know, Tom Verducci recently had an article out uh, over at Sports Illustrated the concerns about the flow of the game. You know, yeah. six runs a game is not all created equal. And, uh, look, I think if, you are, if you're a fan of a good team like the Dodgers, you know, hopefully the Mets and Yankees who are off to slower starts become part of that conversation – I don't know if the flow of the game bothers you as much, but I definitely think from an aesthetic standpoint, you think of the Cardinals, of the eighties, you know, the pirates are who you write about here, uh, even some of the Mets teams of the eighties, good teams. Uh, it was a diversified offense. It wasn't all players that you had to have a shortstop in the lineup that hit 15 home runs and, 
and 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 work the count. Uh, some of the stuff that is, I guess, bread and butter things of becoming good offensive players in baseball uh, is creating some of that, you know, glut. And I think as you talk to Dave throughout the book, you got a chance to, you know, hear about players that may not have been the sexiest names or the best players, but they knew how to play the game. And I'm, I'm wondering, it, you know, not just on the Pirates, if some of those names that come to mind as you, you know, were doing this project and talking to Dave throughout. Well, it was amazing. And we talk about, you know, the, the Mets Pirates connection. The one player that, that comes to mind is Tim Foley. And he was a, um, you know, he was a uh, number one draft pick by the Mets. I think it was 68. And then he gets to and he had a rather middling career, but he was known as a feisty player and, and a decent shortstop. And the thing that always, I believe, held the Pirates back in, in those mid seven with those mid 70s teams, whether it was, you know, getting to, the uh, the NLCS in 74 and 75, and then just coming up short against Philly those three three following seasons, was that they had kind of weak infield defense, and um, especially at shortstop. And, and it's no disrespect to Frank Tavares, who managed to always make a make a dazzling play, you know, occasionally, but he would kind of have issues with the with errors. And the Pirates took a real shot, you know, the second third week in the season, they traded their starting shortstop to the Mets for. The Mets' backup shortstop at the time was Tim Foley. Now, Joe Torre, who was kind of in the infancy of his managerial career, took a shot and tried to play Doug Flynn at shortstop because he, he had a hunch about Kelvin Chapman, you know. And <laughs> Kelvin Chapman. Look at yeah. that. There's a name for the past. Wow. Right? So right. The, the Pirates get Tim Foley, and, and he ends up having a career season, and, um, and he played perfectly. Uh, perfect Pirates artificial turf baseball. A lot of hit and run. A lot of turf singles, you know, setting things up for for Parker and Stargell right behind him, and um, and it was really a kind of a, a spectacular trade that when you know Parker talks about the so seventy nine Pirates, you know his mo- the most valuable trade was obviously getting Bill Madlock, but the smartest trade was getting or or the smartest trade was getting Bill Madlock, but their most valuable player in many ways was Tim Foley. Yeah, those kind of component players, uh, I know they traded him. And, and look, I'm not going to complain about them trading him for a star like Lindor. But I thought Andres Jimenez was going to be one of those uh, component players. You know, a guy that has speed, could make all the plays, not going to be sexy, not going to be more than maybe league average. Uh, I think Omar Vizquel was one of those uh, comparisons. But I think that's exactly what you talk about with Tim Foley. You know, when you build the team, Having those kind of component players uh, is a big deal. Uh, did Dave talk at all about how much uh, baseball he watches now and and his thoughts on the game? And, you know, there's so many different topics and ways you can go. Obviously, the percentage of African-Americans participating is a big conversation. And the Mets have a couple of guys in Marcus Stroman and Dom Smith that are, you know, trying to spearhead maybe some more interaction. I mean, Dom Smith doing some great things uh, uh, to, to, you know, back in LA to get yeah. more engagement from the youth. Um, you know, what, what did he think about today's game and, and, and what were some of the observations that a guy that saw a lot in his career, what were his observations? Cause he spanned into the early nineties when things were starting to change. Yeah. I mean, he, he sees it as just a different game and it's not so much a game that interests him as much as the other game. And they're really, it, it's such a funny thing because there's a lot more, intellectual exercising with um, modern baseball than there was back then. But, and yet, and that's what drives them nuts is that everybody's thinking about the game, but nobody's thinking about the game. The fundamentals are so far off. I remember I was at a, um, I I was at a uh, a card show and I was in the hotel 
and I, and I was stuck on a line with Cookie Rojas and, you know, wow. to, to check in. And we're sitting there talking, and he basically says, I won't coach no more because there's no fundamentals at all, and they're not being pushed. Wow, that's interesting. And um, when, you think, when you think about, uh, you know, the current game and what have you, and you look at some of the events that I didn't even realize that Dave Parker was involved with. So one of this, and this is all before my time, is the 1973 Ron Hodges game. You know, a lot of Mets fans remember that you got to believe 73 Mets. Yeah, they beat the Reds. Yeah, they went on to the World Series and nearly beat the A's. But there were some real exciting games that September. And maybe what was considered the turning point was a game where uh, the Pirates and the Mets face off in late September. Ron Hodges gets a game-winning hit. But he, and Dave Parker wasn't a starter in that game. He was a, 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 you know, a bit player, a young player at that point. But did he have any memories of that classic game where Ron Hodges walks it off? There was a play at the plate that Ron Hodges missed the tag, and, and the ball was, was rolling on the wall. It was one of those you know, magic moments that 69 and 73 uh, harkens back to. You could, he says you couldn't even hear yourself think with the crowd screaming as much as it was. Wow. And, and it just was, was incredible. And he actually went up and faced Harry Parker. It was Parker versus Parker. Wow. And, um, and he ended up striking out. Um, and the Pirates somehow, you know, they, they took the lead. It was a very tight game between Jerry Kuzman and, and Jim Rooker. Pirates t- take the lead in the eighth. And, uh, and the Mets tie it up. The Pirates take the lead in the ninth. The Mets tie it up. And it goes till the 13th inning. And um, Richie Zisk is on first. And this other rookie that was sort of competing with Parker was named Dave Augustine or Dave Augustine. And he hits this, this shot that's supposed to be a two-run homer. Everyone thinks it's a two-run homer. You know, Zisk is kind of taking his time around the bases. And it hits the top of the wall. And it's an epic drop into Cleon Jones's glove. He's got to throw the, 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 the toss of his life. He nails Wayne Garrett, who throws a perfect strike to Ron Hodges, nailing him at the plate. If you can go on YouTube and put Pirates Mets 1973, you might hear Bob Murphy's call of it. And there's and somebody put some some lovely music behind it. It's just it's a it's a hysterical little clip, and it's a wonderful clip if you're a Met fan. And um, and then the Pirates uh, the, the Mets ended up winning that game on a Ron Hodges single. It was like the Ron Hodges you know move of his life, the game of his life. And, um, and basically, you know, after that, the Pirates are still in first place, but they were, they went back to the, um, the Essex house where they stayed that night thinking about how we're going to hit Tom Seaver tomorrow. And the yeah. next day there was like 50,000 fans. Everybody was so juiced up because of that game of the night before that they just filled the ballpark and they just destroyed the Pirates 10 to two. Yeah. It, you know, as I'm listening to you and there's so many more stories we'll get to, which, Again, you, would, you wouldn't think, and I have with me Dave Jordan, uh, co-author of the book of Dave Parker's memoir, Cobra. As we're doing the storytelling, I think it's funny because, you know, I do this show. I've been doing this a long time. And, you know, the criticism that people get, especially me, is that, you know, you're not, you, you have to, everything has to be fact-based. So you feel you have to have everything like a, uh, a term paper. You have to prove everything. And that's fine because, look, baseball has a lot of narratives that have been debunked, especially over the last two decades. But what I think not only with Fastball John, but with Cobra, what you're trying to do, and I think we need more of it, is good storytelling. You could still do storytelling. You could still, and I'm sure Dave's memory, although I know he has some health issues, anybody, even the most uh, area-dite person, you know, myself, you know, you, you don't remember everything perfectly from five years ago, 10 days ago. Yeah. You know, sometimes you get things wrong, but yeah. that doesn't mean it takes away from the storytelling. And I think throughout this book, you know, and we're doing a Mets connection here, but there's so many stories and ways that you can enjoy 
the game, I, I feel like it's being lost because everything now is, you know, rankings and, and, and numbers. And look, I do the same thing too. I just did it in the press segment when we were talking about Jacob deGrom and, and where he stands in terms of his career and, and, and how his career has taken a, a different trajectory. Yeah. But I think you're trying to bring back that storytelling a little bit, it sounds like, in, in the last two books and specifically here with Cobra. You know, it almost seems like in the modern game, in the modern baseball community, that certain folks would rather lose the right way than win in their minds the wrong way. And I think that's an issue. Hmm. That's interesting. So it so you're so basically when you say lose the lose the right way, uh, you know, when you have a team, and that's it's interesting because Dave had this long career, and even the pirates, you know, the pirates were known as a bad team, and they became bad in in the mid to you know mid 80s and and then they had their turnaround with bonds of bunny and what have you but even those bad pirates teams i don't think they were trying to lose i think they brought a lot of veterans if you looked at some good veteran starting pitchers john tudor being one of them Mm -hmm. uh they just things didn't work out it doesn't seem throughout his career he ever was on a team that was actively looking not to win even teams like those pirate teams you know when he went to uh uh you know milwaukee they weren't great uh, he, you know, he never was on a team that was tanking. I don't know if he had any observation about even the teams that didn't feel like they could win at all. There was still a feel like, Hey, let's go out there. Let's try to compete and win. And, you know, even though you might win 82 games, 82 versus 77 doesn't necessarily change the draft so much, but in the minds of some fans, like, you know, you got to lose less to get a higher pick. Okay. They didn't have that mindset back then. No, but I'll tell you what was interesting about the Milwaukee story. And, and we're going to probably publish something on that. We don't really go into it too much in the book just because it's a, it's a 480 page book, you know, so we had to cut a few things here and there. But basically, the Brewers were, were kind of held over a barrel by Robin Yount because um, he, he was a free agent at the time. And he basically um, in the winter of 1989, he basically said, you guys have two weeks to figure something out and to show me that you're committed to winning because the, the Angels just offered me a huge contract. And um yeah, he was talking to Gene Autry at the time. Robin Yao had some uh, real estate interests in, in Southern California and the West Coast. And Autry's wife was a, uh, a, a allegedly a real estate whiz. So they were helping him with with his uh, with his land uh, investments. And um, he basically went to Bud Seeley. You got to do something to show me that, you know, otherwise I'm gone. And they ended up offering Dave Parker a, a very generous contract. And um and meanwhile, Parker didn't want to leave Oakland. Oakland was only willing, after they won the series in 89, Oakland was only willing to give him one extra year. And for you know, reasons that, that you know, we talk about in the book, Parker needed a little more than that. And the Brewers gave him two years, plus an option, plus a bonus. And, and the other thing was they wanted Parker, after the work that he had done with, Eric Dave, with young players like Eric Davis, Cal Daniels, Barry Larkin, and the guys in Oakland, for a less, to a lesser degree, Kinsaco and McGuire, that Parker was perceived as one of the best mentors in baseball. And the Brewers had a young player named Gary Sheffield that they wanted a mentor like Parker to kind of quote unquote raise him. And, and that's why he went to Milwaukee. And Yount wound up declining precipitously after that 89 season. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's interesting. That would have went down as an epic bad contract for, uh, for at that time, the California angels, Dave yeah. Jordan, author of the book, Cobra. There's two really cool Mets moments that I think the fans would enjoy that involved Dave Parker. One, uh, he got he got hit by the dude, and he got sent to the disabled list by the dude, and everybody knows that's not Lenny Dykstra. Everybody yeah. knows. The monster's out of the cage. Some of the younger fans know him as John Stearns. 
And then I think what's funny, and I'm curious to hear his thoughts because he probably vividly remembers it, that game in 86 where he he dropped the fly ball, a lot yeah. of net connections in that game. Yes. John Franco on the mound. Dave Parker drops the fly ball. Big brawl between Ray Knight and Eric Davis next extra innings. Mets go on winning. That game was almost a synopsis of the 86 Mets. I mean, that to me is it encapsulizes that magical season and and that team and, and some of the breaks they got, but also some of the, uh, you know, grit that that team had. So those two events, you know, I'm curious what he remembered about getting hit by John Stearns, uh, sometimes an underrated figure in Mets history. And then, of course, the game where he extended it by dropping a, a routine fly ball in 1886, Mets, Reds, the brawl. What happened in 78 was basically the, uh, the Pirates gave up like three runs in the eighth inning. It's a 6-3 game. and in the top, in, in, the, in the bottom of the ninth, they're in Pittsburgh. There's 30,000 people there for fireworks night. So that's a really good crowd in, uh, at Three Rivers at the time. And um, Parker basically hits a two-run triple over Lenny Randall's head into the corner. A um, couple guys score. It's six to five. There's one out. Bill Robinson coming to the plate. And the place is, is rocking, you know, much like Shea in 73. Robinson hits a fly ball to Joel Youngblood in, in right. And remember, Youngblood, you, you know it, we know it, all, all Met fans of the 70s know he had a rocket for an arm. Not everybody in, in, in the majors knew it at this point. And, um, and Parker standing up there, the, the fly ball to right, he looked over at Stearns, and all Stearns did was troll him with a smile. And basically, Parker just got pissed. And he's like, I'm going to run over this guy. Because, you know, throughout 78, Parker had been running over guys. He put Reggie Baldwin, a rookie catcher, with the Astros in, a, in a, almost like a, you know, concussion. And um, Youngblood catches the ball. And the infielders are screaming. And he tosses it to home plate. And Parker just rolls in. And there is this photo that the Hall of Fame has of Parker just before he hits Stearns. And he's got a smile on his face. And he basically said something like smile mf -er," and then he doesn't remember anything for like 10 hours wow and that's and that to me i mean many people have uh been hit by john stern's big guy and dave parker's a big guy now that's 86 one uh i gotta think because i think i remember there being a quote and i couldn't find it dave parker hated that team as well as Mm -hmm. a lot of the reds a lot of people around the league hated that team and i think that game really stuck in that team's crowd. Now, the Reds, if you remember, were kind of like the ultimate bridesmaids for a while. Pete Rose, the manager, good yeah. team, just couldn't get out of their way in the West, whether it be the Dodgers beating them, the Astros, the Giants. They were a team that was good, but just missing that piece. Yeah. And I'm sure that they wanted to prove themselves against this, you know, burgeoning dynasty from New York. So what did he remember about that? And obviously about the most routine fly ball that you could ever see Dave Parker drop out there in uh, right field. Yeah, he just dropped the ball. He just dropped it. He closed his glove too quick. He dropped it. And um, and then he owned it. He apologized to Franco. Johnny Franco was on the mound. He apologized to Franco um, when he got back to the uh, the dugout. Pete didn't say a word. And um, and later, you know, what happened was, you know, there was the brawl where basically um, Pete went in as a pinch hitter and he got on base. Eric Davis, you know, ran for him, stole second. And he was going to steal third, and he gets up. And uh, he had some words previously with, with Ray Knight. And then when he kind of stood up on his slide, uh, Ray Knight touched him, then he touched him back. And then Eric Gregg, the umpire, grabs oh. Davis. And Ray Knight kind of sucker punched him. Yep. Then, then all hell broke loose. And um, 
And then after the, you know, the Mets ultimately win that game and they, the Reds go back to the, the clubhouse, Parker just turns to Eric Davis like, oh, I'm son, it, this is on me. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, take, I'll take the brunt of everything. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. Leadership yeah. being shown there. And that yeah. was the thing, you know, Dave Parker. And I think that's something that is starting to be overlooked a little bit as we get into the world of analytics. And look, guys are expensive as they get older. And, yeah. you know, the, I, I said to a lot of people, you know, some, you saw some players retire or fade off into the sunset. Part of that could be, you know, pandemic baseball is not for them. And, you know, the last couple of years of their career, they don't want to deal with that. But part of that is it's also the value, you know, look, a lot of money to these guys that they're turning down with a lot of money to us. It's not worth the grind out there. And even later in his career, Dave Parker, he went to Toronto. He was in, in California at some point. Uh, those kind of veterans, even when they only play part time, I wonder if we're missing something today because I don't know if Dave Parker gets a job after 88 uh, in today's game. I don't. You know what I'm saying? I, I think sometimes they may look at him as, you know, expensive. I could do better. Younger guy. Uh, it's, it's a shame, but Dave Parker was that kind of guy that, you know, he, he played very late into his career uh, and was acquired by Toronto as a, a veteran presence in a, in a, in a division uh, or postseason run. Yeah. Well, it was also the manager at the time of Cito Gaston, who was one of Parker's, he was his teammate for about a week in Pittsburgh in 78, but more important, he was his teammate for a couple of years in winter league. And, and they, they, they were very close in winter baseball. And, and it's funny how you look at stats on, on baseball reference and you look at rosters like, oh, these guys played together. And you don't realize back in the day how many of them often played together overseas or they played uh-huh. together in the winter leagues. And that's where a lot of these relationships get formed. You know, a uh, great player, a great prospect uh, from the mid-70s, Mitch, Mitchell Page, or as Park calls him, Mitch Page, um, was, was a big prospect in the Pirates organization. And you wouldn't know it from looking at the um, looking at his baseball card, but he was very, very close with Dave Parker in the winter of 76 because they played in Venezuela together. They were running buddies. And Parker was very upset when part when Page was involved in the, the Phil Garner deal. And he got extremely upset about that because here was my burgeoning best friend who just gets shipped off so we can get a third baseman when they all thought Bill Robinson was going to be playing third uh, for the Pirates in 77. So it's, it's a lot of these relationships that people don't realize exist there. And, um, and Cito Gaston definitely wanted, um, he definitely wanted uh, Parker there for that, to get one last sip of champagne. When Francisco Lindor signed his big contract, I kept telling everybody, you know, it, and, and I've had Mike Piazza on the show. I've spoken to him about it on this program. When you have those expectations of being the man and either you're waiting to get the money or you've gotten the money, Things change. Every player has told me, you know, even though you've gotten your due and you've gotten the money and you're happy and the team showed you that respect, walking into that clubhouse, things change. Parker had that a couple of times in his career. Had it, obviously, the Pirates, and that didn't sit well with the very blue-collar Pittsburgh fans when, you know, he got that big contract. And, and maybe they didn't manage the expectations of, of who he was. He was still a very good player, but maybe they, they wanted him to be better. And then he went to Cincinnati. And not that he had a bad career in Cincinnati, but it certainly wasn't hall of fame level like he was in pittsburgh and i'm curious if he talked about that because it's a big it's going to be a big topic around the mets this year because of conforto looking to get his money and starting off slow and lindor getting his money and starting off slow and and i don't think i think parker's a great guy that could speak to some of that because he experienced that in an era when free agency was just starting and money was eye-popping maybe we're a little desensitized to the money at this point but back then we were not 
I'm going to, I'm going to actually say that, you know, Parker's time in Cincinnati was, was pretty incredible. And so far as he helped reshape the, uh, the spirit mentality of the big red machine. I mean, he gets there as a free agent in, uh, to start the ni- 1984 season. You know, the, um, the organization is on the verge of getting his, uh, getting their third owner, owner within four years. And that's something I don't think has been topped yet. Um, Smart shot, a wacky owner, wacky, wacky owner. owner. But basically, you know, they had nothing with the exception of their GM, Dick Wagner, just been dismissed, who had done some decent, made some decent strides with bringing in, you know, draft and drafting some talent, whether it was, um, you know, Eric Davis and Cal Daniels, Paul O'Neill, Tom Browning, um, a couple others, uh, you know, uh, Tracy Jones was another one they liked, they were very high on. But Parker instilled um, the winning attitude with those players. And you can hear Paul O'Neill even talk about it sometimes. Um, but uh, for the most part, he had some great seasons. I mean, they'll, they'll talk about, you know, the fact that he didn't walk and whatnot, but they don't talk about that. They'll say is his defense was terrible. He was fifth in assists in 1980. He had a great arm, great arm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and he was still a presence in the outfield in terms of his, his, you know, just being there and a presence in the, uh, in the lineup, they basically went from a laughing stock in the early in, in like 82, 83, in 84, they started rebuilding. Six years later, they had a world championship with that core nucleus that Parker helped raise. Did did he talk about the challenges of getting the money coming off the 79 season? He won a gold glove. I mean, this guy was elite offensive player, high average power, drove and runs. Uh, yeah, he struck out a lot, but he also walked a lot. His on-base percentage was, you know, shade under 400. These are elite offensive numbers, uh, even by today's standards. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, he, again, he was very good, Dave, very good. But there's a big drop-off in totality after 79. Um, was it part of it, this pressure of, in a blue-collar town, he's an African-American player, getting big money when players were starting to get big money and the fans didn't like it? Because now the separation began. Did he talk about that impacting him and, and maybe carrying over to some of his, you know, small drop? I mean, drop off nonetheless, but going from elite to very good probably after the 79 season. What happened after the 79 season was that his injuries caught up to him. Dave Parker, um, and, and we talk about what a gift he was to, to Major League Baseball, but if Dave Parker had never gotten injured in high school, he would have been in the NFL. He was mm. the top running back prospect in the Cincinnati area in not going to the 69-70, his senior year of high school. And he was already having, you know, Ohio State was looking at him. Penn State was looking at him. Michigan, um, a lot of schools in Michigan, you know, University of Michigan, Michigan State, Western Michigan, they were all looking at Dave Parker uh, for their backfield. And um, basically, it really came down to um, his injury. He broke, he, he tore his knee in like three, four or five places. Uh, as a high school senior, he had two or three surgeries, and they basically said your football career is done; it's over. Wow! But you can try baseball, and you can play baseball, but it's going to catch up to you at some point. It caught up to him in 1980, and wow. that's really what the issue were with, with what he had going on. It was the injuries, and he had some interesting methods of pain management that you know never really became a personal issue for him, but. Um, he was, he was trying to work through that for a couple of years. He had another surgery in 1980. He had another surgery in 81. And, um, you know, finally, uh, 
you know, he finally started to get better by 1983, but he was very, um, he had so many injuries uh, in those three, three seasons and trying to rehab and figure out how to play with uh, with those knees. Those knees were never the same. And he just, yeah, he's he on a turf majority of his career on turf. Uh, what we know now that probably was the worst possible thing from he didn't have the opportunity like Andre Dawson to leave and go to Wrigley Field and, and get off. I mean, Andre Dawson, it was probably late for him, too, but he he got away. He got away from uh, from Montreal and the hard concrete and things like that. Hey, but before we wrap up, uh, you know, I'd mentioned the Hall of Fame and Dave Parker. You'd have a chance to really sit down with uh, an all time great player. Not many people have that opportunity. And I look and I mentioned some of the names earlier, Buddy Bell, Keith Hernandez. Uh, Dewey Evans, Bobby Gritch. And, and are you now, I mean, cause this is getting tricky. You know, I talked about Jacob deGrom earlier and how we can't just look in counting total stats. Yeah. We almost have to take the era and take the period of dominance or elite, you know, it used to be 10 years. You know, I don't know if Parker has 10 years of all time elite dominance and you don't want to make it into the hall of very good. Cause that's the debate. But you know, some of these names I just brought up, I'm starting to say, you know, they, when you go from 1974 to 1987, and Keith Hernandez is fifth all-time in wins above replacement, and he's not in the Hall of Fame, that's an error. That's a significant error. Now, Dave Parker's top 50 during that era, and he's comparable to Tim Raines and Reggie Jackson and what have you. Have you, as we wrap up here, have you rethought Parker for the Hall of Fame or maybe some other names that maybe he and you talked about as well while you were doing this project? I what I what I told uh, Dave and and what Dave basically you know so we talked about in terms of we we didn't make the book about that and um, you know because he knows he wakes up he goes to bed every night and he wakes up every morning he's the Cobra and he can go up to Cooperstown and walk into any party field saga with a bunch of Hall of Famers and they know who he is and they treat him as such with that reverence you know but I I believe that the mentality behind the voting needs to change and I'll tell you why. The voting, as, as per the rules of the BBWAA, shall be based upon the player's record, his playing ability, integrity, sportsmanship, character, and contributions to the teams in which the player played. And he was the most, Dave Parker was the most talented player in the game for five seasons. He was drafted as a catcher. There aren't too many guys in the hall who came in as a catcher and converted to another, another position and became an elite defender. Basically, he had 26 assists in right field after putting on a, uh, an outfielder's glove for the first time. That's elite playing ability. And with all of the advancements in nutrition and technology and just basic health for, for athletes, nobody's ever come close to touching that since like 1978. Wow. And you know what? The Veterans Committee probably will start to give some of these guys, Dave, a real consideration. I know that they're not going to like their error being snuffed out and i know that i think in 2023 that era the modern era will come up again mm-hmm. and uh the hope is that uh you know reading your book reading books like this starting to get back and really taking away just not the baseball reference that's a big part of it you have to use it but then you got to take that and transfer it to what you just said in context hopefully we see more of that and hopefully the veterans committee could do a little bit of that dave parker more than nearly any player in the last half century has been cited by more star players for his guidance, his nurturing, his encouragement, basically the time he spent raising young players. Again, Eric Davis, Cal Daniels, you know, Sheffield, lesser degree McGuire and Canseco, and Barry Larkin. This is just an anecdote, but 
Barry Larkin, Hall of Fame shortstop, not only insisted that Parker and his wife travel with him to Cooperstown when he, when he was elected, he stayed the weekend in the same rented house. Larkin made certain that Parker was seated up front and made sure to tell the 50,000 fans in attendance how vital Dave Parker was to his career. Right. That's leadership. That's something that I think some teams are missing. And a lot of that could be uh, traced back to money, of course, and analytics. So, Dave, what's next, buddy? Uh, Cobra, great book. Fastball John is another book that if those in the audience haven't, list- haven't read yet, you should check it out. Totally different type of project. A lot of storytelling and, and, and really interesting stuff that you're not seeing as much in today's journalism. So, Dave, what's next for you? Let the listeners know what they could find you and events and all the other fun stuff. Well, we've been doing a number of uh, interviews in, in, in support of the book, which you can find Barnes & Noble, they, uh, Cobra, A Life of Baseball and Brotherhood. And you can find it, obviously, on Amazon. Um, and also, if you wanted to buy an autographed copy for, from Parker, you can go to the uh, Dave Parker 39 Foundation where they sell autographed copies of the book. But uh, otherwise, you know, we're waiting to see what's next. And uh, I'm, I'm looking at a couple of projects that have been brought to my attention. And um, it'll probably be another, you know, another uh, book with an athlete or a celebrity or something like that. But it'll be something with a different spin on what you know about them. So, uh, so I look forward to uh, bringing that to everyone. Well, Dave, listen, you've always been a good friend of the show. You, you do great work. And even though it's a pirate reds project there's tons of mets anecdotes and ways to connect to the modern game so i appreciate you coming on and let's do this again my friend absolutely mike thanks so much for having me dave jordan author of the book cobra interesting stuff wanted to like i said i try to do something different i try to have conversations i try to have a guest that flows this along i can't spend you know an hour plus complaining about the mets offense or you know railing against injustices in the media we got to you got to have some good baseball talk. All right, let's take a quick break. Wrap up. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five, because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon and enjoy the rest of the show. All right, final thoughts. I hope you guys enjoyed a little back and forth between me and Dave Jordan, author of the book Cobra. I know Dave Parker's not a Mets figure, but there was some really interesting Mets connections. And I I thought in general, bringing somebody on uh, from outside the whole Mets community, sometimes you get different perspectives and and I always enjoy uh hearing Dave's perspective guy that's really dived into analytics and and sabermetrics but also really good at storytelling and and that's one of the commitments I'm trying to make here is to continue to balance the storytelling with fact and and try to be as well-rounded on this show as possible um I know that by doing that sometimes you alienate both of the extremes of both type of listeners I mean, the, the, the hardcore analytics guys aren't listening to this show. They're not going to respect this show. They're not going to like the show. And I'm never going to make them happy. So, I, and, and that's the thing. I've never done this show as a way to make a specific group or person happy. I've put the product out as best as I know. And I believe by doing that, you'll get the largest audience. Maybe you compromise some 
overall, um, and I'm trying to think of the right word, reach that you can get. But I believe if you pretend to be something that you're not, everybody's going to see through that and you won't make anybody happy. And then you wind up uh, going out of business here. You know, you just you get off the air. So uh, it is what it is. Hey, um, before I wrap up, I wanted to say a couple of quick thank yous, long overdue thank yous to some listeners on the Chevy Chase at Chevy underscore Chase. And back in uh, April, early April, uh, said he was looking forward to this week's show from Australia. So we got fans down under. So welcome aboard. And John Luby at John underscore Luby on Twitter, also in Australia. I don't know if, uh, if, if Chevy Chase and John Luby are, and I hope I pronounced your names correctly. Um, I don't know if they're the only, you know, they're two buddies that talk about the show in Australia, but Australia, hopefully Crocodile Dundee's also listening. I'm just kidding. David Hans also uh, at David Hans 60 on Twitter, listener to the show. And, uh, Sounds like Sudden at D Truds also listens to the show, and I wanted to to thank him. Hopefully, he's taking his kids to school, listening to this program, and enjoying it. And hopefully, uh, we lived up to the expectations there. Also, wanted to thank Ryan Mitchell for reaching out. Ryan Mitchell, a new listener to the show, and I hope I didn't miss anybody. But anytime somebody reaches out and um, talks about their experience with this program. I, I just want to say thank you, and I say this all the time, and I'll say it again because it's a, it's important. I take very seriously you spending an hour plus of your time invested in this. You can't get time back. You can't just unclick like an article or you know a 30-second video. So I try to make it as worthwhile, and I hope you walk away feeling like that time was well spent, whether it's taking your kids to school, walking your dog, uh, you know, relaxing at the beach or in your backyard or just killing your commute, whatever it is that you do that you use this as your time in between. I hope it was worthwhile to you. So anyway, that's it. Another week of Mets baseball ahead of us. I want to thank Dave Jordan again, uh, author of the book Cobra. Check it out. Great stuff over there. Of course, you could check me out all the time at the Send me a tweet at Mike Silva media and you get the show on Apple podcast, Spotify, Pretty much whatever podcasting service you desire. If you want to interact with me, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your week. We'll be back with another program pretty soon. Till then, be well, everybody.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. Place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.